So, you know, I've got these different relationships with people um, that are not followers of Jesus, and like I was sharing earlier, a lot of times those conversations about the existence of God, and, you know, oftentimes people are wondering, how do I know that there's a God? And, uh, and you know, over my life, I've, there's been times and seasons in my life where I feel like that's a struggle, you know, like, oh, how do I know that God loves me, or is God real? Um, anybody ever feel that way? Just out of curiosity, a few of us, right? And, uh, and so it's, it's, you know, really nice when God... I guess, shows up and confirms that he exists. And last night, uh, I had an experience where I'm 110% positive that God exists now because Mike Belitho caught a fish with me. And I, I mean, I didn't know. I was like, oh, he's alive. Where's Mike guys? <laughs> he did leave. Ah, but um, yeah, uh, on a serious note, though, I want to say something about Mike, and I, we say this quite often, it's not just Mike, but Mike is just such a faithful um, volunteer and servant in our church, and so again, all of our building and grounds things that happens, if there's anything here that gets done, it's, it's largely because Mike and his team does that. So can we give Mike a huge round of applause? Yeah. When, you, when he gets back, because I'm sure he's gone, you just be like, that was a really nice fish, Mike, what a miracle, just say that. When we started, he's like, we're going to see if God loves me. And I was like, I don't think he loves you. And then he caught a fish. I was like, oh, uh, <laughs> let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for your presence. Thank you for your power. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love. And thank you for your truth. And Lord, would you speak to our hearts this morning and... Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would have your way and that, God, the, the cool thing about you being God is that you can do nine billion things all at one time. And so for those of us in this room that need encouragement, would you encourage us? For those of us in this room who need conviction, Lord, would you convict our hearts? Would you bring, bring uh, hope where hope is needed? Would you bring faith where faith is needed? Would you do all the things that you can do um, in each one of our lives, God, because we want your way. We want your, your guidance now, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So um, just want to catch us up. You know, last week we started a new sermon series on the book of Exodus, and we're calling it doxa, which is the Greek word for glory, and doxology is the uh, study of worship. And so we're talking about what worship looks like in the book of Exodus. And what we um, are kind of talking about is this idea of what worship is and how to worship and maybe going to talk a little bit about what worship isn't. And last week we started with this definition about how worship is an outward expression of an inward reality. And then we saw in the book of Exodus that there's three, there's like maybe a three-point sermon in the whole book of Exodus that you can see. And it starts out with these three things. Um, there's slavery. We see slavery. People are enslaved uh, in Egypt in the same way that we as human beings are enslaved to our sin nature. We see salvation. God provides salvation. And then we see service. The people of Israel respond to God's salvation to serve God. And we are called to do the exact same thing. And so what I want to do really quickly is recap and bring us all up to speed. If you weren't here last Sunday to kind of see what we, what we dived into. And we actually basically summarized 13 chapters of Exodus last week. When we got done, I was like, whoa, that was a lot. 
But what we saw was that Moses was born and was raised up by God to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. Um, We saw that uh, at that time, God started to speak to Moses, first through a burning bush, and then in subsequent um, conversations, we see that it was God's desire for the people of Israel to leave Egypt so that they could worship him. And then we, we kind of um, talked a bit about the Egyptian king, Pharaoh, who didn't want to let the people of Israel go because he liked the free slave labor. Um, and so he, he says, you can go, and then he says, you can't go. And then we go through this whole process of the Jewish people um, being, being called by God to leave and Pharaoh going back and forth between letting them go and then changing his mind. And then we saw that God judged Egypt um, with the ten plagues, and after the tenth plague, God um, moved Pharaoh to allow the people of Israel to leave. And then what we kind of came to is this part of the story where as the people of Israel were leaving, right, Pharaoh had said, it's totally okay, you can, you can leave now, get out of here. You know, I don't want to face the wrath of God anymore. And the people of Israel, they get together and then they leave. And then Pharaoh changes his mind again and he sends his army to capture them and bring them back as slaves. So now what we've done is we've come to chapter 14 in Exodus, and the people of Israel have left Egypt, Pharaoh's army is right behind them, and the Jewish people have come to the Red Sea. They are now at the Red Sea, and they have nowhere to go. And what I want to do is I want to read the whole chapter of Exodus 14 for us, and then we're going to spend some time talking about it. So this is from Exodus chapter 14. When word reached the king of Egypt that the Israelites had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds. What have we done letting all those Israelite slaves get away, they asked. So Pharaoh harnessed his chariot and called up his troops. He took with him 600 of Egypt's best chariots along with the rest of the chariots of Egypt, each with its commander. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, so he chased after the people of Israel who had left with fists raised in defiance. The Egyptians chased after them with all the forces in Pharaoh's army, all his horses and chariots, his charioteers, and his troops. The Egyptians caught up with the people of Israel as they were camped beside the shore near, near this will be a fun one, Phi-Hahiroth, across, the, across from Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the people of Israel looked up and panicked when they saw the Egyptians overtaking them. They cried out to the Lord and they said to Moses, Why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? What have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Didn't we tell you this would happen while we were still in Egypt? We said, Leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness." But Moses told the people, don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. (laughs) It's so good, isn't it? Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the people to get moving. (laughs) Pick up your staff and raise your hand over the sea. Divide the waters so the Israelites can walk through the middle of the sea on dry ground, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they will charge in after the Israelites. My great glory will be displayed through Pharaoh and his troops, his chariots and his charioteers. 
When my glory is displayed through them, all Egypt will see my glory and know that I am the Lord. Then the angel of God, who had been leading the people of Israel, moved to the rear of the camp. The pillar of cloud also moved from the front and stood behind them. The cloud settled between the Egyptians and the Israelite camps. As darkness fell, the cloud turned to fire, lighting up the night. But the Egyptians and Israelites did not approach each other all night. Then Moses raised his hand over the sea, and the Lord opened up a path through the water with a strong east wind. The wind blew all that night, turning the seabed into dry land. So the people of Israel walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground, with walls of water on each side. Then the Egyptians, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and charioteers, chased them into the middle of the sea. But just before dawn, the Lord looked down on the Egyptian army from the pillar of fire and cloud, and he threw their forces into total confusion. He twisted their chariot wheels, making their chariots difficult to drive. Let's get out of here, away from these Israelites, the Egyptians shouted. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. When all the Israelites had reached the other side, the Lord said to Moses, Raise your hand over the sea again. Then the waters will rush back and cover the Egyptians and their chariots and charioteers. So as the sun began to rise, Moses raised his hand over the sea, and the water rushed back into its usual place. The Egyptians tried to escape, but the Lord swept them into the sea. Then the waters returned and covered all the chariots and charioteers, the entire army of Pharaoh. Of all the Egyptians who had chased the Israelites into the sea, not a single one survived. But the people of Israel had walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground as the water stood up like a wall on both sides. That is how the Lord rescued Israel from the hand of the Egyptians that day. And the Israelites saw the bodies of the Egyptians washed up on the seashore. When the people of Israel saw the mighty power that the Lord had unleashed against the Egyptians, they were filled with awe before him. They put their faith in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So one thing that I think we've learned a lot in the past few years, like when I think about the last three plus years, I think we've learned how much people have been impacted by fear, worry, and anxiety. Have you, have you kind of noticed that? Like, I mean, just think about your own life. You know, um, it seemed like as the global pandemic happened, we saw firsthand how fear gripped many people's hearts, anxiety went through the roof, and it was hard not to be worried. Um, and what's been fascinating to, to read is how many studies by different psychologists and social uh, psychologists uh, have done about our country and how cons- consistently right now these studies reveal that people are significantly controlled by fear and worry. So, for example, 52% of Americans fear They are in danger on a daily basis. So like half of this room right now wakes up every day and is worried about aliens. Okay? I'm I'm sure of it. Okay? (laughs) Reoccurring theme. Just saying. Uh, 31.9% of adolescents. Listen to this. This is is important. 31.9% of adolescents between the ages of 13 and 18 are currently impacted by anxiety. And since 2001, um, suicide rates have increased consistently. In fact, suicide is the 11th leading cause of death in the U.S. And so, I mean, it doesn't take very much um, research or study to realize how we as human beings 
are impacted by fear, worry, and anxiety and other, other negative emotions. Um, now, here's the thing, though, is there's no doubt in my mind that our country has a mental health crisis. I do believe that's true, but I also want to point out that fear, anxiety, worry, and other similar emotions have always been part of the human experience for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, as we just read in Exodus 14, right? When times get tough, what do the people of Israel start doing? Yeah, they start grumbling, they start complaining, um, and so the question is never whether or not we're going to experience those feelings, okay? There's nobody in this room that is never going to have negative experiences and feelings, right? It's just part of human, human, the human condition, it's part of the human experience, but, but we see this in Exodus 14, because this is what's interesting to me, okay? So Israel is, is, has been delivered, right? They've seen the ten plagues. They've seen God miraculously work, and this is what they say. Why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? And they did say it that way, by the way, right? You know, what have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Didn't we tell you this would happen? Right, immediately when the, when the pressure is on, the people of Israel begin grumbling and complaining, and they start to doubt God. Now, I know none of you ever do that. But Israel does. And, and it's, it's when we're threatened. I think when human beings, when we're threatened or we're worried or we're afraid, um, it's in those tough situations where we begin to doubt God. And, and it's where we start to say things like, where is God? I mean, I've been in many situations in my life where the pressure's on and it begins to feel like you're all alone. Like, where is God at? Where were you, God, when this happened? You know, um, I've been in situations in my life where I actually have said, God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you abandoned me? I'm all alone. And, and this is, I think, where we begin to build on our previous definition of worship. In order to understand worship, I think we need to kind of understand what's at work happening in Exodus. Because again, last week, what we saw was that Exodus can be read through the lens of a battle for worship. Who will Israel worship? Will they worship Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God? Or will they stay in Egypt and be forced to worship all these false gods? But the thing about worship is that worship is about pushing past our fears, our worries, and anxieties, and trusting God. Trusting God, trusting that God is who he says he is and that God will keep his promises. So it's even in the midst of the most difficult and challenging life situations that we have to put pause on all those negative feelings and begin to trust God. Amen? That is oftentimes what, what the, the, the situation calls for. And it's not, I want to be really clear, because there's all this leadership. If you listen to leadership podcasts, in the last like five years, all these leadership gurus try to talk about not having anxiety. You know, like, oh, you need to get rid of all the anxiety. And every psychologist and therapist I know that I've ever talked to is always like, Ugh, that's not humanly possible. It is not possible to get rid of anxiety. Okay, have you ever driven in Los Angeles? <laughs> well, I mean, seriously, or, or go to San Francisco, or, I mean, a few years ago, Don and I are like, let's take the kids down to San Francisco. So we've got all of our kids who are living with us. We've got five kids, and we're trying to walk downtown San Francisco, and I am having an anxiety attack because I'm positive that Don is going to get us killed, okay? 
not really. She was the only sane one in the entire situation. But I'm like, these kids are everywhere, and there's people everywhere, and I'm just having anxiety. And, and think about it. Any situation you find yourself in that's pressure, anxiety is a natural emotion, right? Worry is natural. The question is not whether or not we'll have those feelings. The question is, are we going to trust God in spite of those feelings? And that is what worship is calling us to. And so we see that here in the book of Exodus, right? The people of Israel are under pressure. And so the question is going to be, are they going to trust the covenant-keeping God or are they going to, are they going to doubt him? You know, one of the biggest um, moments in my own life for this challenge was when Don and I uh, were having our second child. And um, when our daughter McKenna was born, she was born, and I'm holding her in the hospital. And if you've ever had that uh, privilege and honor of having the opportunity to, like, be in the room, have the baby get born, and then hold it, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm blown away by what is happening here. And I remember I was holding my daughter, and as I was holding her, she began to look a lot like a Smurf and turned blue. And I was like, I was like, we have a Smurf baby. This is not normal. And all of a sudden, the nurses like freaked out and grabbed her and stole her from me. And they were like, oh, there's, uh, there's a lung problem. And so they put her on all this oxygen. And, and as a father and Don, we were both just like, I mean, can you imagine? Like your anxiety just goes through the roof. You're like, oh my gosh, what is going on here? Is she going to be okay? And, and it, was, it was really, really challenging because in that moment, I remember I was on the verge of like, God, where are you at? You said that you'd be present, but here we are in this situation and you're nowhere to be seen. And so I was really doubting and went home that night and Alana, our oldest, was like, I think two. And I was um, putting her to bed and I was just saying, hey, you know, we need to really be praying for McKenna. And, and she's like, oh, she'll be fine. And I was like, you're two. What do you know? And then I was like, oh, wait, she knows way more than me because she was okay. And, and it, it's, again, that trusting God thing. We have to trust God in spite of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And so we see this, this in the book of Exodus. Numerous times the people of Israel rebel against the truth of who God is because of what they see and what they are surrounded by. And that's no different than the world we find ourselves into. But here's what we need to, need to understand about worship, is that worship is a response. Worship is something that we do as a response to what God does. And so, after God delivers Israel, I mean, when you're reading Exodus 14, I, don't, I mean, you can feel the energy in the room, right? We're reading it, we're like, yeah, let's go, right? I mean, it's like, oh my gosh, God is about to do something powerful, and he does. And it's like you read it, and it's like, man, I'm excited. I'm like, yeah, pumped. Do you know that God still does those things today? He still does those things today. We still find our situations where we are completely surrounded by the enemy. We are in life situations where we are desperate, and God still shows up today. He still shows up today. But the question is, what are you going to do when you're in the midst of the pressure? What are you going to do? Are you going to doubt God? Or are you going to trust God? Now, if we trust God, then worship is the response. We, we respond. And so here's what's really cool. I love this. In Exodus chapter 14, we read this whole entire story, this narrative. The people of Israel have come to Red Sea. God provides parts of the whole entire sea. The people of Israel walk through it. They're delivered. They watch God destroy their enemies. And then they say, yes, God is true. He did what he, would, he, did what he said he was going to do. And then this is what's crazy. In Exodus 15... 
we read that Moses and the people of Israel sang their song to the Lord. So the first thing that the people of Israel do after God has done a miraculous, supernatural provision is they begin to sing. They begin to sing. They say, I will sing. They sing, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. He has hurled both horse and rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has given me victory. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Your right hand, O Lord, is glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, smashes the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow those who rise against you. They sing, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Glorious in holiness, awesome in splendor, performing great wonders. You raised your right hand, and the earth swallowed our enemies. With your unfailing love, you lead the people you have redeemed. And this is the natural thing about the human condition. We all struggle with negative emotions, anxiety, worry, fear, whatever it is. But here's what I think is interesting about the universal human experience, is that in every single culture, the natural response is to sing. Like, I've been to countries all over the world, and one thing that I see every human being does is they all sing songs. Like in England, you go to a soccer or football, football match, and guess what all the people do there? They sing. You're like, oh my gosh. You know, when people are in love, what do they do? They sing, right? It, that's the natural thing about, about worship as response is that the people of God all throughout history, all over the world, when they are exalting God, it's natural to sing. And what I want you to, to understand is it's not that singing equals worship or worship equals singing. Worship can be singing. Singing can be worship. But it's a natural way for people to express their awe and, and their wonder at who God is. And so I, I think it's important for us to realize that this is something that we do. Every single week we sing these songs, and there's a reason why. is because people for thousands of years, thousands of years, one of the first ways that they respond to God's salvation and God's redemption is that they sing. They sing. So I'm in this small group, and... On Wednesdays, I meet with a small group, and it's, I'm, I'm like the old guy there now, which just, it's starting to weigh on me a little bit, okay? Because it's all these 20-year-olds, and I'm like learning all these new cool words, though. So I'm like, oh, I got to add that to my repertoire, and I can't remember the latest one. I wrote it down somewhere, but like, I mean, like, it's lit, okay? <laughs> and uh, so one of the, there's a couple people in the group who are new to church, new to, new to, you know, uh, I guess the Christian faith in some ways, and I, by the way, I've asked this person if I could share this story, um, and they said I could, but um, so they were explaining to me about, about what God's been doing in their life, and, and so I'm, I'm just like fascinated by these stories, and so one person uh, in particular is like, you know, I don't really, the music thing doesn't do anything for me at all, I don't really get anything out of the music time, you know, I guess God speaks to me during the blurbs. And I'm like, what are the blurbs? He's like, you know, that thing you do up there? I'm like, the sermon? So uh, that is the new word, blurbs. <laughs> it's the best word of all time. I'm like, oh, yeah, I just got to work on my blurb here. Um, anyway, so we're talking, and we were, we were talking about worship, then. we were talking about how music, uh, how its, its impact. And this person who said that the music didn't really do anything for them at all 
later in that same gathering was talking about how they've experienced God's presence and when they've actually felt and discerned and, and like known God's love or his grace or his, that became aware of, of his presence. And, I, and so they're sharing, and I was like, oh, when was that? And they're like, oh, during the music. And I was like, <laughs> like, I was like, that sounds like that's our theology of worship right there. Is because what we believe is that when we sing these songs, God actually responds to our singing and becomes present and known to us. So the scriptures tell us that we're supposed to draw near to God. And we draw near to God as we sing, amen? But then the scriptures also say that when we draw near to God, He draws near to us. And so when we sing these songs and we delight in God, God delights in us. And that's the power and the beauty of of worship in general is that worship is us coming near to God to say, you are great, you are glorious, you are worthy to be praised. You are the hope of our salvation. You are the rock of our our relationship with, with you, God. Jesus, you made a way where there was no way. And God just says, amen, let it be so, and just enters into our stories and provides all the things that we need to be able to face our battles, to have victory over the enemy. And that's why worship is powerful. Amen? Let's stand up together.